Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Okay, so let's start out tonight with a birthday. Of course, this is a birthday of someone you've probably never heard of before, uh, but this is the person who first identified a chemical that most of us enjoy, and that is, of course, caffeine. <laughs> uh, and so this is the birthday of Friedlieb Ferdinand Runge, uh, who was born in 1794. He was a German analytical chemist. And again, he was the first person to discover the active ingredient in coffee that gives people that buzz that we all crave. Now, I don't get my caffeine from coffee. I prefer either tea or soda. Coffee is just not for me. But I know many people who cannot possibly get through their day without having that cup of coffee or two or three and so, yeah, um, you may have actually seen the Google Doodle this morning uh, celebrating him. It was a very cute one. So if you haven't seen it yet, do uh, take a moment to look at it. Now, the really cool thing is that that was not even one of the most amazing things he did. That was the one of the first things he did, but he did a huge amount of things. He was just really an amazing chemist. Uh, his first major success at just 15, uh, and this is all self-taught, uh, was to accidentally discover that the chemical atropine, which is found in belladonna, uh, dilates the eyes. And they actually still use atropine to dilate eyes to this day. Uh, the discovery led 10 years later to his being introduced to Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Now, I actually have had heard this story sometime in the past. It, it uh, There's a memory there of this particular story about this meeting, and I don't remember exactly why, but I know I've heard it before. And so basically, uh, Van Goeth, uh met with him, and uh, his advisor at the time said, you know, show him the atropine, basically, thing trick. Uh, and so there was a kitten and he put some atropine in the kitten's eyes. And uh, Von Goethe was so impressed uh, that he actually offered Runge a bag of then pretty rare and precious uh, coffee beans to examine. And so this is what ultimately led to Runge's discovery of the caffeine um, compound. But again, he didn't stop there. He went on to develop the first coal tar dye and a process for dyeing clothes that was associated with that. Uh, in 1819, while still a student, he isolated quinine from uh, Kinchona bark. Unfortunately, he's actually rarely credited for having been the first to discover this uh, first truly effective anti-malarial. It's actually, unfortunately, usually attributed to Pierre-Joseph Pelletier and Joseph Bianami Caventou, uh, who published their work a year later. 
He also developed an early technique for separating chemical substances called paper chromatography. And later in life, the confirmed bachelor uh, turned to more domestic problems. He worked on things like stain removal, making wines from fruit, canning meats and vegetables, because uh, all of those are very important uh, chemical reactions. Uh, you may not think every day when you're doing certain things in the kitchen that it's all chemistry. Uh, so it makes total sense for someone who is both a chemist and someone who enjoys culinary skills to, uh, you know, work in that realm. Even uh, created a method for extracting sugar from beet juice. And so, yeah. And so he did have culinary skills. He apparently enjoyed entertaining guests at dinner parties and basically making a big spread to show off how good he was in the kitchen. But the best story, as far as I'm concerned about Runge, is that he was largely an autodidact uh, who hadn't had formal schooling beyond elementary school. When he was 15, he was basically doing that in the equivalent of his garage um, at, at his parents' house. And so, you know, I always have a special place in my heart for autodidacts. Um, I think that it is definitely a way that I tend to uh, identify as well. And so the, the funny part of the story, actually, though, is that because he hadn't had any formal training beyond elementary school, he hadn't studied Latin, which, you know, in Germany at the time wasn't necessarily that big of a deal until you got to trying to get a doctorate. And unfortunately for him though it ended up working out, uh, the oral exams for the um, doctorate were actually conducted in Latin. And so apparently he managed to somehow squeak through it by basically repeating aphorisms and just little phrases that he had picked up along the way, such as practica est multiplex, which means practice is varied, post nublia phobis, uh, which means after the clouds, the sun, and errare est humanum, which is, of course, to err is human. <laughs> so the next time you sit down for your cup of coffee, uh, or get your cup of coffee on the go, take just a few moments to remember the really interesting and fascinating person who discovered its secrets. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. He seemed like a really neat guy. Um, just so many fun stories. I would have loved to have been in that room with him being like, um, yeah, uh, phrase in Latin that, you know, somebody wrote down once on a, uh, you know, on the back of a book or something. <laughs> Very funny. Okay. So let's move on now and uh, have a couple of updates. One of them is very brief. Uh, I just want to update you on Wisdom, the 68-year-old uh, Laysan albatross. Uh, and so we can now say that her latest uh, egg has hatched. So she now has a chick that she is uh, working on fledging. 
And so the chick hasn't been named yet, uh, but it just is really nice to know that Wisdom and her chick are doing fine and she continues to just keep going. Um, if you don't remember or didn't hear the show before, uh, Wisdom has been coming back to the same place every year to, to, um, hatch a chick. And so, uh, these albatrosses only lay one egg, but usually the, uh, females, they will often skip a year or two in between eggs, but not wisdom. Wisdom comes back every single time, (laughs) uh, has since, I think like 2003 has come back every year to lay an egg, um, and rear it with her mate because, um, albatrosses do mate for life. Uh, though I think that she's on her second mate, um, because I think her, uh, her first mate passed away. Um, but wisdom keeps going strong. She is the oldest recorded, uh, bird in, uh, that is currently alive. And I think probably just in history. And so, yeah. Okay. And I do want to, because it is just so exciting, to give a just a tiny brief update on uh, NASA news. So the InSights lander has successfully deployed a dome over the SEIS, or the Seismic Experiment for Interior Structure. And so that is to protect the device from Martian winds and extreme temperature fluctuations, uh, which are, you know, a big issue on Mars. Temperature is one of our biggest bugaboos, noted InSight Principal Investigator Bruce Bannert in in a news release. Think of the shields as putting a cozy over your food on a table. It keeps sice from warming up too much during the day or cooling off too much at night. In general, we want to keep the temperature as steady as possible. However, as with most NASA projects, the sice is pretty robustly over-engineered to withstand the possible fluctuations. And so components were built to withstand contraction and expansion, uh, which is the basically that's what happens that can make things uh, break down because if you don't have the ability to withstand those, you know, components can pop out of place and things like that. Um, But they were built to be able to withstand those temperature changes Uh, The instruments are also insulated within a vacuum-sealed titanium sphere, and they are then encased in that outer laying, uh, which, uh, outer covering, I should say, uh, which you might have seen in illustrations, uh, the sort of copper-covered cover that they've just been putting on. And that is honeycombed with cells that trap air and keep it from moving. And Mars's air is actually really good for this because it's mostly carbon dioxide, which is slow to conduct heat. Now, the next big task for NASA's InSight lander is to deploy the heat flow probe, uh, and that might happen as early as next week. So that is very exciting, and I am very happy that everything has just, just basically perfectly gone to plan so far. And uh, just one more really quick uh, update from the realm of space news. This one just really warmed my heart and I had to share it with you um, tonight. The European Space Agency has announced that their next Mars rover will be named for Rosalind Franklin. I am so excited about this. Uh, 
And so they noted that this name reminds us that it is in the human genes to explore. Science is in our DNA and in everything we do at ESA. The agency's director general, Jan uh, Werner, said in the announcement, Rosalind the Rover captures this spirit and carries us all to the forefront of space exploration. And so, yes, as I as I was saying, this is super exciting. I cannot wait to tell everyone about the exploits of Rosalind the Rover. Oh, my God. Not only is it just an adorable name, um, Rosalind Franklin is definitely uh, completely and utterly deserves to have such a wonderful um accolade and such it's just so nice that she is being honored in that way so yeah very exciting okay so let's move on now to talk about something that i feel we talk about a fair amount on this show uh which is bees uh it is almost time for bees to be shipped across the country in order to go to california and to pollinate the majority of the world's almond trees. So about 70%, I think, of the world's almonds come from uh, these California trees. The problem is, is that for the last several years, there have been big concerns about bee die-offs. This is part of the whole bioc apocalypse that people talk about uh, that is, in some respects, it, actually happening and in some respects has been overblown. And so bee expert Reed Johnson, an associate professor of entomology at Ohio State University, was tasked with finding out why this is happening, why these bees keep dying. And so he first found that some insecticides that had thought to be harmless to bees were actually impacting larvae. And so they thought that these were, you know, completely harmless. And then it turned out that, nope, uh, there were certain ways in which that was actually impacting the bees. And that was his early work. His new study with colleagues from Ohio State and the College of Worcester finds that the combination of insecticides and fungicides that have been being used while actually individually safe for bees, were actually combining to form new lethal compounds to the bees. And so it's, you know, something that you wouldn't necessarily have thought about. Fungicides, often needed for crop protection, are routinely used during almond bloom, but in many cases, growers were also adding insecticides to the mix. Our research shows that some combinations are deadly to the bees, and the simplest thing is to just take the insecticide out of the equation during almond bloom. It just doesn't make any sense to use an insecticide when you have 80% of the nation's honeybees sitting there exposed to it. That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> and so uh, luckily, almond growers are already starting to change their practices in order to address this problem. Um... But it also does kind of bring up larger questions about pesticide use and if other combinations of otherwise harmless chemicals are actually combining in these ways and are affecting bees in other crops that are pollinated by them or just in general. 
I was surprised, even the experts in California were surprised, that they were using insecticides during pollination, Johnson said. I think it was a situation where it wasn't disallowed, and so the products were thought to be bee safe, and you've got to spray a fungicide during bloom anyway, so why not put an insecticide in the tank too? And so that's another problem is that nobody knew they were doing this um, because it didn't occur to anyone else. Um, and so that might be another place where researchers can now look and say, all right, tell us exactly what you're doing to your crops so that we can figure out what on earth is going on here with our insect populations. Now, the ins- the insecticide is important. It's meant to be used against the peach twig borer. But everyone, uh, Johnson and others, have noted that this treatment can be done either before the almond bloom or after, and that would then prevent contamination for the bees. So let's hope that this year is a better year for bees in the almond groves. Okay, I actually have two bee stories tonight. (laughs) And so our other bee story continues with the list of kind of crazy things that bees can do that really we once thought were the exclusive purview of humans or at least primates or at least mammals. (laughs) And so we've already known that they can use tools, uh, that they seem to somehow understand the concept of zero, uh, that they can count, uh, that they can learn from each other and a whole bunch of other things. They're just crazy incredible. And so potentially adding to this list is the possibility that they are able to understand basic math. Researchers at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, who are the same group that did the uh, research that suggests uh, that bees can understand the concept of zero, uh, that's what they did last year, (laughs) Uh, they have found that bees could possibly be using simple arithmetic, uh, such as addition and subtraction, in order to successfully navigate a maze and then receive a food reward. Now, basic math may seem basic, but it requires a host of cognitive abilities, such as the ability to organize numbers, to apply complex rules, and to exhibit functional short-term working memory. And so the setup was that bees were given a simple Y-shaped maze with one path leading to a sugar reward and the other to a bitter solution of quinine. Quinine again. (laughs) Um, And so the bees were put into basically an entry chamber, the sort of stem of the Y, uh, and they were presented with a set of shapes that were either yellow or blue. Blue shapes meant that when they got into the maze, the correct solution was the addition of one shape, while yellow meant to subtract one shape. So if the antechamber had two yellow uh, squares, then the solution would be the um, branch that had one yellow square. And so basically the peas were then, the bees were then uh, presented with the two paths, again, marked either with one more or one less shape. And so over time, they were able to work it out. After a hundred trials and between four to seven hours of training, 
all 14 honeybees had learned the trick. They weren't always right. They failed between 20 and 30% of the time, but they, quote, performed at a level that was significantly different from chance, uh, according to the study. Now, there is, of course, uh, something that still needs to be kind of uh, thought about in this, uh, in these sorts of um, experimental uh apparatuses, there's always ways in which things could be different from how we're interpreting them. And so, of course, as is often the case with such studies, not everyone agrees with their conclusions. <laughs> when they pass the initial entrance and stimulus, they just have to find the stimulus in the maze that was most similar to the first one seen. Clint Perry, an expert on invertebrate intelligence from the Bee Sensory and Behavioral Ecology Lab at Queen Mary University of London, who uh, told Gizmodo, if they learnt this well, their performance should be about 70%, which matches the behavioral results reported quite well. The ability to add and subtract is a higher level cognitive ability, and to claim that an insect can do this is extraordinary, and therefore requires extraordinary evidence. Bees are impressive and might be able to do arithmetic, but the results presented here do not convince me. Now, of course, this is always kind of the case with these kind of behavioral uh, um, apparatuses and experiments, because there is always some bit of interpretation, that it's not a cut and dry, yes, this is absolutely what's happening. It could be a number of other things. Uh, clearly, they are figuring something out because 70% is definitely better than chance, um, which is, of course, in a true chance, it would be 50-50. Um, and so there's definitely something going on. And of course, why they're studying this is besides just wanting to figure out exactly what's going on with bees, but this trial could actually indicate um, if they could figure out that this is actually being learned, they could use it in AI research. And so currently AI requires a lot of trial and error to figure out new things like this, but the bees seem to figure it out really fairly quickly. The evidence that bees can learn addition and subtraction in 100 trials shows that the mechanisms of learning in the bee's brain promote rapid learning, Dyer noted. As we apply bio-inspired solutions in teams with rapidly developing AI technology, we can likely improve efficiency. And so again, even though it is just really interesting to be able to see what the bees are doing, there is also that other component where it might be useful in um, AI. So um, we're going to take a break and we will come back and talk about animal cognition some more uh, because there were several really interesting stories this week about that. So do hang on for just a moment and uh, we will come back and as I said, we will talk more about animal cognition. Hooray! Uh, <laughs> you are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, and this is Evidence-Based. Hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires, and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. 
I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt! Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Ford's Library offers free access to computers and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Okay, we are back. And like I said, we are going to do some more talking about animal cognition. This time, a little bit different, though. We're going to talk about 
what mice and rats are talking about. <laughs> and so a new project from the University of Washington is hoping to figure out just what all the little squeaks and chirps uh, that the animals make, what they are actually trying to say. And they're doing this using deep learning in order to try and take out the human element and again, figure out what it really is that they're saying both to each other and to us. The project is called Deep Squeak. Uh, I often say that uh, scientists are terrible at naming things, but this one is golden. Um, the, it's just so adorable to me. Um, it's just, I, I love it. Anyways, <laughs> and so again, they're using deep learning and machine vision approaches to try and categorize the various vocalizations of these important lab animals. The researchers convert sound files of chirps and squeaks into sonogram images, which are then evaluated by the computer programs. We can train the software to analyze these calls in a way that is much more similar to how humans learn, said Kevin Coffey, a lead author of the report and a co-creator of the software with Russell Marks. Rather than mathematically describing what a vocalization is, we just show it a picture and examples. Now, the program then sorts the hills and valleys into different categories based on initially uh, manually labeled calls that were given to the program. And so it's basically able to then pull out sort of uh, syllables and syntax and things like that. Now, one of the benefits of letting the program do this is that it's actually better at filtering out background noises than humans. Even when humans would do this by hand, the calls are hard to pick out of an audio signal when they're embedded in a lot of background noise, said Coffee. The animals are running around and banging into things. Now, right, right now, researchers rely on a basic understanding to figure out what is going on. So for instance, higher pitch sounds are associated with positive responses. Um, and that made me think you might've seen it. Uh, there was a video that went around last year of basically showing that if you rub the belly of a rat, it will make little noises. That's basically, um, analogous um, to laughing. Um, and so, yeah, it's really cute. And that lower pitched calls are basically considered a negative response. Now, the program promises to reduce the number of misidentifications and to speed up the process up to 40 times faster than manual analysis. The program is designed to aid both researchers who are well-versed in identifying the syllables and syntax of rodent vocalizations and those newer to the field. And it's freely available on the web for download. Now, of course, this isn't the first software to tackle this challenge. There are two older programs, Muppet or Mouse Ultrasonic profile extraction, and a commercial program called Ultravox. Now, Deep Squeak isn't necessarily better overall than these other programs, but it does claim to do a better job of filtering the background noise and detection of varying frequency calls. 
There remains much mystery about the biological meaning of specific syllable shapes as they relate to ongoing behavior and increasing the numbers of tools that labs can use to investigate these differences is a plus, said Alison Knoll, co-author of the Muppet paper and an assistant professor of research at the Keck School of Medicine uh, at the University of Southern California. Now, one of the biggest places where this research can help is in drug addiction uh, research. In drug addiction, we need to know not just if the animal is taking drugs, but why they are taking the drugs, said Coffee. Are they taking the drugs because they like it or because they're escaping the negative feelings associated with withdrawal? It could also help us in understanding depression, anxiety, and other things being researched using animal models. So that is really fascinating work. And, you know, I just think it's very cool to actually be trying to figure out what the animal's responses really are. Of course, you know, having watched many cartoons and read many books uh, over the years, I can think of all sorts of, uh, you know, if we lived in a slightly different uh, universe, how that could go, you know, either really interestingly or horribly wrong. But, you know, we, we live in this universe, so hopefully it will just be helpful to people to be able to better understand uh, the responses of the animals. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about the mirror test. Now, this is a very famous psychological test. Uh, it was first used by psychologist uh, Gordon Gallup in 1970. And it suggests that some animals like chimps, dolphins, and magpies are able to understand that the mirror, that the image in a mirror is themselves rather than another member of their species. And so a new study suggests that a, that a fish known as the cleaner wrasse uh, might be able to pass this test. And so uh, the team was from Osaka City University in Japan um, at the time of the experiment, and they took four cleaner wrasse and put a mirror in each of their aquariums. At first, they behaved as if another fish were in their space. Uh, they began to, you know, uh, posture and do things like that. But then they began to do odd behaviors, such as swimming upside down and spreading their fins and quivering. The scientists then injected a colorless dye under anesthesia, which didn't seem to change the fish's behavior. But when they injected a red dye uh, that showed on their throats, uh, and again under anesthesia so they weren't aware, uh, and returned the, the mirrors to their aquariums, three out of the four seemed to be trying to get a better look at the dye, and then scraped their faces on the ground. Alex Jordan, a principal investigator now at Max Planck Institute Department of Collect Collective Behavior in Germany, notes that the lab is working on recreating the experiment and adding in further quantitative tests that would be more definitive. Uh, for instance, for partially because uh, several prominent researchers have expressed interest, but also skepticism. And of course, one of the obvious limitations is that because fish don't have limbs or hands, interpreting their behavior around a specific mark is sometimes hard. So for instance, in the very first version of the mirror test, um, 
the um the apes were basically they were uh sedated and then a uh red splotch was put on them um i think it was on their head or on their chest i can't remember exactly which one sorry um and then when they saw the mirror they then basically tried to you know wash it off um or scrape it off and so you know that's a pretty definitive idea that they saw that understood it was on them and then did something about it however of course with a fish you don't really get that <laughs> and so that definitely makes it a little bit harder to figure out what is actually going on another inter interesting wrinkle is that if the findings are replicated it might be less that the fish are actually passing the test but rather that the test is not what it is thought to be not a test of a deep existential knowledge of self, but something far more prosaic. The minimum required explanation is not that these animals are looking in the mirror, then having a moment like, whoa, I exist, while having an acid trip about their place in the universe, said Jordan. They're probably just using the mirror as a mechanism to see their body in the same way they can turn their heads to see their body. Now, one of the things, though, is that Jordan feels that since people don't expect fish to have any kind of real higher intelligence, they actually uh, were holding his research to a higher standard. It took several years for the paper to even be published. And so that's an important thing to uh, talk about and to acknowledge in these um, spheres because it's important that we don't have these, that we try and weed out these sorts of prejudices against this um, experimental uh, in results because, you know, just because you didn't expect it to happen doesn't mean it couldn't potentially be real. And it's especially uh, galling because we know that there are fish who have been shown to do really interesting things uh, like tool usage, uh, protecting their young, and a variety of other complex cognitive functions. And so it's not surprising that not everyone is skeptical uh, because of these known behaviors. So there is some support. Uh, Trevor Hamilton, an associate professor in psychology from McEwen University in Canada, notes that they chose the right fish species to run this task. The cleaner wrasse has an incredibly complex social dynamic, so I'm not surprised that if any fish were to show positive results on this test, it would be them. The cleaner wrasse has a great memory capacity, great cognitive capacity, and their social dynamics are pretty incredible. So, like other creatures, other kinds of creatures that have previously been considered to have too small of brains for higher order cognition, fish might just end up surprising us in the end. And speaking of surprises, it turns out that the first fossil feather ever found, thought to have belonged to an Archaeopteryx, is in fact, uh, has now in fact been positively identified as not being from that particular ancient bird-like reptile. And so it was found back in 1861 uh, within late Jurassic limestones found in southern Germany. And the fossil is actually pretty peculiar. Most fossil feathers are impressions preserved within the rock. However, in this case, the fossil is traced into the rock in a 
in the form of a dark organosulfur film. It's also incomplete with no signs of a quill present. Now, it was assumed to have come from an Archaeopteryx because the first specimens of these bird-like reptiles were found within the same limestone strata in the same area. But because of that lack of any kind of quill, it was impossible to know for sure. Now, the shape of the quill is very important. It identifies whether a feather is primary, uh, the large feathers needed for flight, secondary, small wing feathers that aid in lift, or primary covert, or tail feathers. And so new technology has done what normal vision and other kinds of technology weren't able to. Using laser-stimulated fluorescence, or LSF, co-author Michael Pittman, a paleontologist from the University of Hong Kong, was able to visualize the missing quill where other imaging techniques had failed. LSF detected the missing quill of the isolated feather when X-ray fluorescence and UV techniques did not, noted Pittman. The quill only remains as a geochemical ghost or halo, uh, because the original fossil material is no longer preserved. LSF demonstrated great sensitivity to this halo, recognizing previously unappreciated detection limitations in other applied techniques. And so once Pittman and lead author Thomas Kay of Arizona's Foundation for Scientific Advancement were able to see the quill, they were able to compare it to confirmed impressions of Archaeopteryx feathers and determine that it did not match. We made detailed comparisons between the isolated feather and all known feather-preserving Archaeopteryx specimens and ruled out its similarity to them, said Pittman. This results in the conclusion that the best source of the isolated feather is an unknown feathered dinosaur. So that is very exciting because it means that there were more feathered dinosaurs besides Archaeopteryx at the time and that we haven't yet found them, which is the really exciting part um, because, you know, they are potentially out there. Of course, they are potentially not out there as well, because one of the things that we always have to remember is that finding fossils is always amazing uh, because the way, because the uh, series of events that are required in order to create a fossil are basically so incredible that, you know, the amount of fossils we find is pretty, pretty small. And, you know, given all of the animals that have lived, um, you know, think of all of the, you know, cats and dogs that have ever uh, lived since the time that, uh, you know, they became domesticated. How many of those skeletons are going to become fossils? Not very many. And so even though, you know, we know that these things are out there from their, you know, traces or from, you know, other evidence that we find, we aren't necessarily going to find anything more. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of fossils out there that are known only from a single bone. And we know that it doesn't match any of the other fossils we've found. So we know it's a different animal, but we don't know anything more than that. Um, so, you know, hopefully we will find uh, more examples 
in order to be able to flesh out our understanding of these late Jurassic uh, bird-like dinosaurs. But for now, we just have to kind of hope. But it also uh, shows how new technology can be used to discover new information about the specimens we do have uh, that are already present in museum collections, which is, of course, something that I'm, you know, very interested in and I'm constantly <laughs> reminding people that, like, museum collections are amazing and there's so much to learn just within them without ever having to leave the house. <laughs> and so, yeah. All right, let us move on now and talk about music. <laughs> so this is a radio station after all, uh, and we do play some great music. And so, in fact, stay tuned tonight for lots of it after civil politics. Uh, but getting back, <laughs> a new study has found that dopamine is in fact integral to the reward experience of listening to music. In everyday life, humans regularly seek participation in highly complex and pleasurable experiences such as music listening, singing, or playing that do not seem to have any specific survival advantage. Understanding how the brain translates a structured sequence of sounds such as music into a pleasant and rewarding experience is thus a challenging and fascinating question said study author Laura Ferrari, an associate professor in cognitive psychology at Lyon University. And so it turns out that while it makes a lot of sense, there hadn't actually been a lot of studies done or proof found that there is an actual, um, you know, connection between dopamine release and, uh, you know, that it was causally linked to the pleasure of listening to music. So researchers manipulated the dopamine, dopamine, ooh, this is a hard word, dopaminergic transmission of 27 volunteers while they listened to music in three different sessions separated by at least a week. The experts gave participants an oral dose of the dopamine precursor, levodopa, which increases the availability of dopamine a dopamine antagonist, risperidone, which reduces the effects of dopamine, or a placebo, lactose. They found a dose response for dopamine when listening to music. Uh, that basically means that the more dopamine that was allowed to connect with synapses in the brain, the greater the pleasure people found from listening to music, uh, the greater their willingness to spend money on it, and uh, the greater their desire to continue to listen. Ferrari notes that this result actually contradicts some animal model studies, which showed a dopamine response for motivation and learning, but no clear-cut response for more uh, hedonic responses such as food. These results indicate that dopaminergic transmission in humans might uh, play different or additive roles than the ones postulated in affecting process in effective processing so far, particularly in abstract cognitive activities such as music listening. Ferrari explained. She also noted that they weren't looking for a pharmacological way to increase the feelings of pleasure while listening to music. 
Rather, they used a pharmacological approach to studying the brain's response to music. We cannot conclude that taking dopamine will increase your musical pleasure. What we can say is much more interesting. Listening to the music you love will make your brain release more dopamine, a crucial neurotransmitter for humans' emotion, emotional and cognitive functioning. So, yeah, very interesting. Okay, so let's take a moment now and circle back to talking about animals. And so we're going to talk about really a very cool animal. A new study led by Duke University has provided evidence of the diving habits of Cuvier's beaked whales. And so these are actually the deepest diving mammals currently alive. Uh, And so, yeah, even they go further down than, you know, the infamous blue whales that have these, uh, you know, are supposed to have these pitched battles with, uh, you know, enormous uh, squid down in the very depths of the oceans. Cuviers go below that. (laughs) Um, And so the data was gathered from 5,926 dives uh, from tagged whales off of Cape Hatteras in North Carolina. And so uh, they will hopefully help us learn more about how these animals are able to survive and even thrive in the extreme depth and cold of the deep ocean. Their deep dives average about 1,400 meters, which is over 4,500 feet, uh, lasting about an hour while they are feeding near the sea floor. They typically only spend about two minutes at the surface between dives, said Jean Shearer, a doctoral student in ecology at Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment. It's amazing that they dive to such depths withstand the pressure and be down there for that long with such brief recovery times. Now, this is the first large data set for Cuvier's beaked whales from the U.S. Atlantic. Previous studies have been done in the Pacific, in Italy, and in the Bahamas, but different populations have differing diving habits, so you need to basically study each group individually. And so in order to gather the data, 11 whales were outfitted with limpet satellite-linked tags. Now, one of them actually failed, uh, but the other 10 logged 3,242 hours of behavioral data from almost 6,000 dives between 2014 and 2016. Now, the data shows that the whales are almost continuously diving with little or no recovery periods. They follow a deep dive with three or four more shallow dives of around 300 meters or just under 1,000 feet. Again, researchers don't yet understand how they're able to maintain such a behavior. Now, The other part of this is that not only will it hopefully give us information about this, um, but it gives us a good baseline for how the whales act normally. Because the team's next step is to start 
testing the responses to low levels of sonar. And so um, if you're at all aware, uh, sonar is a deeply, deeply divisive um, subject uh, between people who uh, use the ocean, uh, mainly between uh, the military, between the Navy, and uh, people who are um, you know, interested in the well-being of the animals in the ocean, especially whales and dolphins and other um, cetaceans. Uh, so yeah, these animals are fascinating, and there is so much we still don't know about their behavior and physiology, Shearer said. They are the world's deepest mammalian divers, yet we don't yet understand how they dive to such extremes. And of course, we don't understand how things like sonar can affect them. And uh, even though we do know that it does. And so there actually have been some studies that have said, you know, sonar is actually really dangerous for these kinds of animals. Um, you know, it can really mess them up. And it's really upsetting that, uh, you know, we basically have been doing all of these experiments with things out there. Um, you know, one of the worst things, of course, though, isn't even sonar. It is the, um, I guess it does use sonar, but uh, it's this sort of exploratory uh work that goes into finding, trying to find offshore drilling uh, sites. And so basically they drop giant um, weights onto the seafloor and are able to, you know, use that to basically create seismic waves um, that they then use in sort of the same way as sonar. And, um, you know, those actually really mess up uh, the, you know, surrounding animals to have those waves constantly bouncing around. Um, and it's just, it's a really interesting, but also worrisome uh, field to talk about how, and to look into how our sounds that we're putting into the ocean actually affect the animals in the oceans. Um, but, you know, hopefully we'll learn more and we'll do better. Uh, so yeah. All right. That is all the time I have for tonight. Uh, I would just say go and take a look at some of these uh, beautiful animals and don't think too hard about anything else. <laughs> um, I hope you have a great week and I will uh, be back next week with more stories. Okay. Good night. This show is part of the Planet Side Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.